Hello, everyone. Welcome to this podcast from the IOD Centre for Corporate Governance. I'm Chris Hodge, the Senior Advisor to the Centre. This is the second in a series of podcasts we're doing looking at the link between governance and innovation. The Centre launched an inquiry into the subject in June and we'll be publishing a report later in the year which will set out our findings and include recommendations for action. The development and diffusion of new products, services and processes is a significant driver of growth and productivity and crucial to the transition to an economy that is more sustainable in its use of resources. Historically, the innovation performance of UK companies is mixed, with some high-performing businesses and sectors, but a long tail of non-innovative companies, so there's a lot of work to do. Now, obviously, there are many factors influencing a company's ability to innovate, but in this review, we're primarily looking at the impact of the governance of the company, the role of the board, the corporate culture, where innovation sits in the structure and so on, and factors such as the impact of ownership and the rules under which companies operate. I'm delighted to introduce Tom Gosling, a leading independent authority in corporate governance and responsible business. Tom is an executive fellow in the Department of Finance at London Business School, where he contributes to an evidence-based practice of responsible business. As part of his role, Tom engages extensively with regulators such as the Department of Business, the FRC and the FCA on issues like remuneration, corporate governance and stewardship policies. Tom is also an executive fellow at the European Corporate Governance Institute and previously had 20 plus years experience as a board advisor, including as a senior partner at PwC. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Very interested to hear what you're going to have to say. I'll start with a fairly broad question, if I may. When thinking about the link between governance and innovation, what are some of the things that we should be keeping front of mind? Yeah, well, thanks, Chris. I mean, I think the first thing is that governance is just like a really complicated area. And ultimately, it comes down to human behavior, and therefore lots of things uh, interact. And, And when we look at governance research generally, there aren't that many sort of indisputable truths. Most things you know, depend upon the context. And therefore, um, we should be kind of quite cautious about any sort of one size fits all or kind of magic bullet solutions in governance that will affect innovation, because a lot of it will will depend on, on, on the context. I think the second thing is that we can't just look at the impact of governance on innovation in isolation, because there might be trade-offs with other aspects of firm performance. So, I mean, for example, there is some evidence that boards that are insulated from investor pressure do more R&D. But on the other hand, there's also evidence that there are some pretty poor consequences of insulating boards in terms of empire building, bad acquisitions and so on. So again, we've got to look at the thing holistically. I think the third issue is that we've just got to be careful to differentiate between innovation volumes and innovation effectiveness. So quite a lot of research on the impact on of various factors on innovation looks at the kind of value of R&D that's undertaken. But of course, effectiveness is what counts. And, you know, there's some, some evidence, for example, that hedge fund ownership results in cuts in R&D in, in dollar terms, but actually increases in R&D output in patent terms. So we, we've got to kind of look through to actually the quality of the innovation, not just what's done. And then finally, I think we're going to mainly talk today, I think, about governance and impact and innovation within companies. But we've also got to really look at system effects as well. And what works at the company level doesn't necessarily scale up to better impacts at the economy-wide level. And it's always really important to keep that, that systems component in mind as well. I think uh, very good warnings to us as we progress with this review there. I think 
Tom, I mean, first, certainly we take uh, very strongly the point that you can't assume that what works in one company will be equally effective in another. And, and the challenge is complicated, I think, by the fact that we're trying to look not only at how governance works in highly innovative growth companies or startups, uh, where there may be features that work in their favour, but also at more established companies where innovation is more of a question of integration and, and gradual implementation rather than, than any sort of, as you call it, a, a magic bullet that will transform the, the company's products or processes. Uh, also take very strongly the point that uh, the framework matters greatly. I mean, we, we wouldn't set out to say that governance is the main influence on a company's ability or willingness to innovate. There are many other system factors there. Uh, and, and as you say, the, what works for the economy as a whole, there may be trade-offs in terms of its impact on, on different companies. So, so all those points, I think, well worth establishing up front and, and, and very well taken on our side. Bearing in mind what you, you say about being cautious of drawing uh, conclusions from, from looking at individual things, what, do, what does the academic literature have to say on governance, if, if anything, uh, and its yeah. impact on, on innovation? Yeah, I mean, I mean, so I'll start with kind of innovation at the, at the company level, the influence of government innovation at the company level. And, um, and as with quite a lot of governance research, it's a bit of a mixed picture, which reflects the complexity that we've, we've just been um, discussing. So there aren't that many clear results. And on, on many questions, there are studies that cut, cut both ways. You know, so, for example, on, on the question of, um, you know, of ownership, yeah, a really engaged and knowledgeable kind of block holder or family owner could, could encourage the long-term perspective necessary to do more innovation. But on the flip side, it could work the other way in that because that owner is completely undiversified in their wealth holdings, they may actually be very risk averse. And we know innovation is quite risky and therefore they might be less inclined, you know, to undertake um, innovation. You know, similarly, if we look at institutional investors, you could run an argument that says, you know, institutional investors are, are too remote to really understand you know, the, the, the specifics of the value of R&D investments and so may encourage kind of short-termism. But on the other hand, there's evidence that institutional investors are actually a little bit better than other types of investors at recognising when managers make good innovation bets that go wrong and, and, and protecting them from, from getting fired in those circumstances. So the problem is that a lot of these kind of particular institutional factors can can work both ways depending on the detail of the of, of the context but when I when I kind of read the, the the research literature on this area I think there are two things that do stand out as being relatively consistent across a number of different findings so one is around um, skills knowledge and experience of directors and the other is around incentives sort of broadly defined so just starting with skills, knowledge and experience, it, it does seem that having well-connected boards with skills and experience in the company's kind of core innovation areas you know, is really helpful because it helps those boards understand the specific value of innovation incentives rather than just kind of focusing on you know, risk management and, 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 and monitoring of, 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 of executives. So provided that the board members that are knowledgeable and well-connected aren't kind of don't become overstretched and too busy, which, which can turn the effect negative. You know that the composition of the board does really seem um, to matter and, and creates boards that that, that that are focused on adding kind of strategic value to the company. There's then quite a lot of research that points to the idea that the question of incentives for management is is really important. So, you know, innovation in, in, in investments are risky. 
and you know they're they're unpredictable they're often long-term payoffs are uncertain and they can fail and so creating the incentives for managers to undertake those uh, investments and on the flip side removing kind of disincentives for them to undertake those investments does seem to be really important now but this of itself this question of incentives and for the minute i'm going to park pay i think we might come back to pay later on i'm, I'm talking here more about incentives in terms of um, ownership structures and the extent to which you know it, management teams are insulated you know this is a bit of a bit of a minefield but things that does seem to matter the performance culture in the firm seems to matter so board monitoring that focuses on non-financial and strategic factors rather than just taking a fairly conservative financial monitoring approach does seem um to make a difference. So this comes down to the performance culture of the board and the balance of the inside and outside directors, um, and also the extent to which actually there are knowledgeable investors as block holders uh, in the business. So those knowledgeable investors could be could be a family owner, but it could be a hedge fund, right, depending on the consequences. But, you know, this idea that there are committed knowledgeable owners who understand the value of innovation and who put in place boards that monitor company performance, taking these non-financial factors into account does seem to be really important. There is also some evidence that more entrenched boards, um, as in more protected by various kind of anti-takeover provisions or staggered boards and so on, do more um, innovation, uh, do more R&D. But I think this is one where I think there's a real, comes with a real health warning, because we also know on the flip side, there's a lot of evidence that insulating boards from investor pressure has very bad performance outcomes in terms of uh, empire building, poor acquisitions. So, you know, this is an example of where just doing more innovation in isolation may not be a good thing. I mean, you can do too much innovation, you can do inefficient innovation. It may not, it may be executed poorly. So in some of these areas, you know, it's really important kind of to look at it holistically, but it does seem that, you know, the model of ownership and the nature of board monitoring creates important incentives for managers to undertake innovation. Thanks, Tom. I think the, the point you made about the the level of protection for the board and the ability to make speculative investments and, and uh, run the risk of failure without coming under too much pressure from, from owners, I think is one that's, that's come through already in some of the interviews that we're carrying out with entrepreneurs and, and board members and investors. Um, and certainly the argument for and against the ones that are fairly well rehearsed uh, you see them perhaps at their extreme in some of the, the American examples of, of some of the high-tech IPOs there. Uh, and interestingly, one of the points that came out of a discussion I had with somebody who works in Silicon Valley last week was that um, the goes to the point that you were making about the knowledge of investors, and they, they felt that one of the reasons why there had been success there that perhaps had not been replicated in other markets is that a lot of the venture capitalists came from the industry themselves originally yeah. and have the knowledge and ability to discern. Well, it's not always clear that they do are able to discern the good from bad companies, but mm. this was this was his view. Uh, and I think the, the point you made also about the skill set on the board and the networking of the board members is also something that's coming through quite a lot. A, a couple of the entrepreneurs we've spoken to have both said that the the background of the CEO in particular is is, is an important one right. uh, in, the, in their experience because they will sort of understand the importance of innovation in a way that perhaps somebody who comes from a finance background with an MBA might not. Mm. Uh, and, and so they felt both of those were issues. 
Uh, and both those incentives and, and, and skill sets and so on sort of touch on the issue of culture, uh, which is something that's come through very strongly in all of the interviews we've had to date, that culture is a, a driver of innovation. Uh, and also that also links quite closely, I suppose, with the, the purpose of the business, which I know is an issue that, mm. that you have a particular interest in. Mm. Uh, any thoughts on the importance of purpose and culture in this context? Yeah, uh, happy to, to share that. I mean, just before I do that, actually, just, just reflecting back on something you said there around, you know, the role of protecting management when they make mistakes in innovation, if you like, you know, to create that risk taking culture. I think this is an area where we can easily draw the wrong policy conclusions, because I think what the research shows it actually committed and knowledgeable investors and, and effective boards can create that culture in a way that supports innovation. Um, but we sometimes jump to the conclusion that, well, what we need to do is to protect management teams from outside interference. And therefore, that leads us to wanting to weaken the role of institutional investors or encourage dual class shares and things like that. Whereas actually the evidence on those particular interventions is, is much, much weaker. And, uh, you know, I think it's actually what seems to be much more fruitful is protecting management from um, poor outcomes when they innovate through strong ownership as opposed to absence of ownership. I mean, I think, I think that's what... No, I, think, I think that's an important distinction. And I'm, I must admit, I, I agree with you that this is an area where historically perhaps uh, regulators and policymakers have drawn the wrong conclusions from such um, anecdotal evidence as they've, yeah, exactly. they've, they've they looked at. Yeah, exactly. They can jump the wrong policy prescription. Yeah. No, 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 I, so I, I just agree with to, you that. to re reinforce that point. But I mean, coming, yeah, coming back to your question on, you know, culture and, and how you think about embedding it. I mean, yeah, culture is absolutely at, at, at the nub of it. And I, I think this is one of the reasons why academic research on governance is 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 really mixed, because the, the same governance feature can have very different effects on culture, depending on the whole cluster of governance kind of uh, features that are, that, that are in play. And, you know, I mean, I think innovative cultures seem to have a number of things at their core, including, of course, you know, curiosity and love of exploration in, in, in its own right, tolerance of good failure, you know, and positive outcomes for people who, who successfully in, innovate. Although that does have to be linked with a culture of accountability, because, you know, one of the things that we see and is interesting around kind of some of the hedge fund research on innovation is that volumes of innovation and outcomes from innovation are very different things. And innovation has to be exploited and 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 taken advantage of so it's, it's it's a delicate balance and that culture ultimately is is embedded through consistent leadership actions and, and consequences that are that are repeated over time and, and, and this is where i think purpose kind of can be really helpful in creating that consistency over time uh, and helping you know all stakeholders understand the consistency of of, of that corporate culture uh, because one of the really important aspects of purpose is to act as a guide to culture um you know, in a way that kind of reinforces intrinsic motivation, which is so important to innovation. And so, you know, a clear purpose linked to strategy can really help here. But I think this is, again, a really important kind of misunderstanding sometimes about the role of purpose, because purpose is sometimes considered, you know, interpreted as being the pro-social portion of the activity that a company does. So it's almost like we've got our business and then, you know, uh, over here, we've got the kind of the purposeful benefits to society, which almost acts as an expiation for the sins of the business. Whereas actually, I think what's what's really important is for purpose to be really strongly linked to strategy and the choices that a company makes. And, and I think a well-articulated purpose can therefore help, a, you know, reinforce uh, an innovation culture. So, Tom, if I may, may just interrupt you there briefly. You, you mentioned earlier uh, remuneration, and I think this is perhaps a point where 
it, it might be useful to expand on that. So um, mm. do you think financial incentives are part of getting the culture uh, and, and right in the company? Um, yeah, I think they are. And, 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 and I, I mean, I think they're a part of getting the culture right. And, and they're also a part of avoiding getting the culture wrong as well. I mean, I think there's avoiding a negative as well as creating a positive. And, um, you know, I mean, an example of this is if we go back to this idea that, um, you know, managers need to need to feel that they're going to get rewards for investing in, in innovation. One of the problems that we have is that executive pay is horribly short term. I mean, it, it is generally based on financial targets over one to three years. And there is actually some pretty good causal evidence that lengthening the time horizon of pay and linking it to stock price rather than just financial targets does produce more investment in uh, innovation and also broader stakeholder relationships. And so I think this time horizon of pay really matters. And, and similarly, there is some evidence, it's not overwhelming, but there is some evidence that employee stock ownership can help with innovation. And, and really interestingly, can help with innovation productivity. Because I mean, obviously, employee stock ownership isn't going to affect the level of R&D that a company undertakes. That's a kind of a board level strategic decision. But what it does seem to do is to improve the output in terms of patents that companies get per dollar of R&D. So that sort of sense of shared engagement and purpose and shared incentives through the organization um, does seem to be helpful. Uh, my experience around innovation incentives is that it's quite important to keep them kind of high level and flexible because incentives for innovation is a real example of where, um, um, you know, for the, those of you who remember kind of the 1970s, Goodhart's law, you know, applies where something that is a good measure of innovation can cease to be a good measure the minute you link it to pay because it immediately gets met in ways that you really kind of didn't quite you know expect so an example of that would be you know if you look at pipeline progression in pharmaceuticals you know there's a pretty clear pattern that if you're going to get you know through to stage three you've got to have enough going in the hopper at stage one at the beginning and you know you've got to keep that innovation pipeline healthy and balanced the minute you start linking that to pay you can get all sorts of things through stage one that have no chance of being kind of commercially effective as, as, as a drug at stage three and so on and so forth so you have to be careful what you wish for in pay but undoubtedly you know overall um, pay incentives, you know, kind of kind of do matter, and short-term pay incentives can really inhibit innovation and and and, and need to be removed. Thanks, Tom. I mean, you know, you know a lot better than I do with your experience previously and advising boards and remuneration. That this whole area is one where it is very easy to to set out completely the wrong incentives almost inadvertently. But so it's I, I understand your words of caution there. I was interested in what you said about employee stock ownership as a potential driver of productivity. Mm. Going back to the conversation I had with the, the person from Silicon Valley, one of the things they pointed out that they felt was perhaps different about the way some of the, the successful tech companies had grown up there was that typically when they were set up, roughly one third of the, the stock was given to the all employees shared amongst them. And they felt that that had been an important contributory factor in encouraging, as you say, productivity and and commitment right. to the cause. Uh, and I think that's a, an interesting angle that we all want to look at here. So going back to your remarks on purpose earlier, Tom, and the, and the question about the extent to which this impacts on the, the culture and the potential for innovation within a, a company, there is a, a view that we've heard that directors' duties as currently defined in Section 172 of the Companies Act might inadvertently discourage investment in innovation. 
Um, and as you may be aware, the IOD is supporting a Better Business Act campaign to revise that section of the Act. And there's also a view that we hear quite strongly that the emphasis on the board's oversight role in rules and codes has resulted in boards that are, are risk averse. Uh, do you think there is any truth in, the, in any of that? Yeah, I, mean, I, I do have some sympathy with the notion that that corporate governance in the UK has tended to focus a little bit more on preventing failure as opposed to supporting success. And I think that there, there is there is something about the governance culture in, for example, the US that does differ from the governance culture in, in Europe that reflects that different perspective. Um, and, um, you know, and I think that's something that we really need to consider carefully and, uh, you know, and, 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 and look at. And, if, you know, if we, if we look at some of the things that the research said about the impact of governance on innovation, I mean, actually, it is dimensions of governance that are very much about supporting business success rather than preventing failure, because it's getting directors with the right skills and experience on the board. It's about monitoring management in, in a more kind of strategically aligned rather than risk monitoring way. And it's about creating the right kind of committed ownership and long-term incentives to, to generate that success. So, you know, I think that is something that in, in the UK, we, we sort of pride ourselves on this sort of supposedly world-beating um, corporate governance system, but it hasn't unleashed a torrent of innovation in UK companies over, over the period in which it's applied to our, our listed firms. So I think that's something that we should really reflect on. When it comes down to the broader purpose of the, of, of the corporation in terms of serving wider stakeholders, I mean, I really don't see how that has um, impacted innovation negatively. And in fact, I'm quite concerned about that as a potential um, development. And, and, and this is where I think it's really important to differentiate between innovation at the company level and, and at the economy-wide level. Because, um, I mean, one of the things that we, we kind of know about innovation is it's very much driven by this process of creative destruction. It's about new entrants coming in, disrupting existing industries. That is where, you know, the bulk of innovation and job creation happens. And there's a there's a really, really, really excellent, excellent book by um, Philippe Agion, the, the prominent economist that he's written called with co-authors called The Power of Creative Destruction, which 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 essentially kind of shows how economic growth is, is driven by innovation and how innovation itself really depends on incentives and protection of property rights to incentivize that innovation and, and creative destruction is really, really core to this. So my worry about proposals like the Better Business Act, which I'm, I'm not a big fan of for a number of reasons, but actually I'll, I'll focus here on, on the question of innovation. The, the Better Business Act in effect weakens investors' oversight and property rights by upweighting other considerations in boards. It will tend to entrench management more and will create a stronger status quo bias because most stakeholders actually generally prefer the status quo to disruption. And that's true of kind of customers and suppliers as well as employees. So I, I actually see that proposals that aim to broaden directors' duties actually just throw sand in the wheels of this process of creative destruction, which is so vital for innovation. And so I actually see it as being a negative uh, for innovation. And I also worry that, you know, imposing lots of vague and ill-defined broader stakeholder responsibilities on boards will simply make them more risk averse 
than they are um, today. So I think we make this mistake of focusing too much at the company level and saying we want companies to kind of endure for a long time and we think that's a good thing when we know that creative destruction and new entrants are the real drivers of innovation. And in fact, you know, there's other really interesting evidence around the path dependence of innovation, which suggests that companies aren't very good at innovating at what they things they don't currently do. Right. So innovation tends to very much be incremental within companies rather than self-disrupting. And so, again, that's why I'm a little bit kind of, you know, skeptical about whether actually it's going to be oil majors that drive the transition to clean energy and climate change, for example, because they, they just have this huge path dependency around how they currently innovate. So I, I'm, I'm very cautious about changes to directors' duties in this regard. Yes, and, and some interesting points there that I think perhaps haven't been part of the debate around around Section 172 to date about the extent to which taking on board more formally, and if that's right, stakeholder views than perhaps is the case at the moment. There's obviously uh, potentially social and other benefits to do them, what you should call them, the system-wide benefits that may not perhaps undermine the, the ability or the willingness of individual companies to to drive some of the economic growth. I think that's a very interesting perspective on that. I was interested in what you said, and, and this is perhaps something more for another another inquiry next year, perhaps, mm. or something about the uh, fetishizing the enduring nature of the company. I mean, one of my particular areas of, of interest in governance is that we are, we are increasingly reinforcing the traditional model of what we think a corporation or an organization mm. looks like through the way that mm. we uh, strengthen, if that's the right word, the board and the governance requirements, put more and more direct responsibilities on the board when uh, the actual structure of organisations and markets is bears less and less resemblance to the sort of corporations that we we thought we were trying to govern 30 years ago when we started looking at, at governance. And I think there's a bit of a yeah. tension in the direction of public policy and, and corporate structure, if that's the right word for it. But as I say, that's, I that's, really that's perhaps for another... Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, I think there is something that's important and relevant to this debate, which is that, um, I mean, we are entering a period of massive change and massive capital reallocation across the economy, and that's got to happen, and we've, we've got to enable that. And, you know, I think if you if you think about, you know, you look in the UK or across Europe, you know, how many truly great companies have been created in the last kind of decade or two, and you compare that with the US, and it's really sobering. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's a massive difference. And actually, you know, we are going to get ourselves out of the problems that we're in, in significant part through innovation. And, um, you know, given that we know that innovation happens extensively through this process of creative destruction, we seem to spend a lot of our time trying to prevent creative destruction in, in how we think about corporate governance. And I think that's a huge policy mistake. Yeah, no, agreed. And I think that brings us on to the last question I had for you, Tom, which is if, if the Business, Business Act and, and Review and Directors duties isn't the answer in your view, are there other public policy initiatives the government or regulators could take that would encourage innovation or creative destruction, as you, as you put it? Yeah, I mean... I mean, so part of it is about kind of continuing to, you know, all the wheels have created destruction rather than throw sand in the wheels. And, and I think that is about, you know, keeping the right balance of property rights, patent protection and competition. And I've, if I've got a concern about one leg of that, it's maybe competition. You know, maybe over the last few decades, we've gone a little bit soft on competition policy and not been aggressive enough um, on that. 
And I think the other area where there's been a real decline, and, and, and I'd include the US in this, it's not just been, been, been here, is investment in the fundamental science space through R&D. Um, and, and some of that historically, particularly in the US, has come through defense spending, but it needn't just be defense spending. And, and actually, government-funded R&D is the category that has, has declined you know, much, much more than corporate R&D, actually, which is pretty much uh, held up. So, you know, that is really important for supporting the most kind of risky transition phase of, of technologies as, as, as well. So that, that matters. But on the other hand, I mean, I think if we're going to accept and have creative destruction, we need good safety nets. I mean, this goes way outside corporate governance, but, you know, governments need to provide protection to employees from the disruptive effects of change. Otherwise, we won't get political support for, for creative um, uh, dis, uh, disruption, uh, destruction rather, you know, so, um, I think for me, these broader policy areas are somewhat more fruitful for government policy intervention than intervening in corporate governance. Um, and, and actually if anything, I think in corporate governance, I'd like us to see us having greater tolerance and more diversity in some of the approaches to corporate governance. We're very much, as you just mentioned, kind of try to drive people down a one-size-fits-all model of governance, which, given what we know about the situational importance of context in relation to the effectiveness of governance, is, is perhaps a little bit of a mistake. So maybe we need to be encouraging more acceptance for picking the right governance model for the circumstances of the individual company. No, I think that's a, a, a really interesting and important point to to end on. I mean, certainly we we like to pride ourselves on what we see as the flexibility of our governance approach through devices like the code and compliance plan. But I think there is something in what you say about a tendency to one size fits all, but maybe needs a bit of a fundamental rethink, not just in relation to innovation, but, a, but more generally. So I think that's a very good point to end on. Thank you very much, Tom. There are many other things I would like to talk to you about, but uh, in the interest of keeping the podcast to a reasonable length, we've got to stop there. Thanks so much again for, for sharing your insights and, and views of this. I, I found it very stimulating. I hope all of our listeners have as well. Um, to the listeners, if you'd like to find out more about the inquiry and how you can contribute, you can do so by going to the centre's website, which is www.iod-cfcg.com. And you'll find there the call for evidence and discussion paper that I mentioned, including details of how you can submit comments. And we'll be very pleased to hear from you. We'll be back in September with our next podcast. Until then, just remains to thank Tom once again for his, for his fascinating contribution uh, and to wish you all well. Thank you very much. <laughs>